0: This is Jim Martin. Hi, Tracy. Hi,
1: Jim. This is Tracy Vandiventer, Little Things First Podcast. How are you doing today, Jim?
0: I'm doing okay. So Listen,
1: I'm excited because today we're going to be talking to Zaretta Hammond. Well, we think it's Zaretta. We're going to have to ask her. It might be Zaretta. Z-A-R-E-T-T-A, Hammond. She's written a book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain.
0: You know, the brain is kind of this new... Um, New wave of research and, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure that our. Instruction and in our schools are brain compatible. So, this will be interesting to hear a culturally relevant perspective on it.
1: I am in support of everything that's compatible with the brain. <laughs> right.
0: That probably sounded Especially funny, teaching. right? Like, our brain is important. <laughs> Go figure. Exactly. But no, I mean, like, understanding no, how our brains work. And we've been talking about, you know, we talked to kids about like flipping their lid and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So, the knowledge of the brain has become a little bit more pertinent.
1: Yeah. Okay. Let's give her a call. Okay. Hope she's home. I
0: think she is. Hello. Hi, is this Zaretta?
2: It is.
0: Am I saying your name correctly?
2: You certainly are.
0: Is this James? It is. Nice to hear from you. Yeah,
2: well, it's nice to
1: connect.
0: (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for taking time to uh, speak with us today. I'm here with Tracy Van Deventer, my colleague.
1: Hi, Zaretta. Hi, Tracy. We really appreciate you. you. It's nice to talk to you, too. And we really appreciate you taking time to talk with us. We uh, are doing our best to try to find out all the ways that we can help our students be successful. And and the name of our podcast, Little Things First, we recognize that there are many little things that we can focus on that make a big difference over time. And we're really excited to
0: hear from you. Mm -hmm. Great. yeah, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm, I'm a, personally a big fan. I've had your book for a while. And, Thank um, you. Yeah, so I'm excited to be able to um, hear you in person today. and He'd like oh. it signed.
1: Can he send it to you to get it signed, Soretta? He <laughs> can, and
2: I'd send it right back to you. Oh, that's awesome. We'll <laughs> really? send it with
1: postage paid return. That, <laughs>
2: Listen, in this day and age, that's the way we're doing everything. Huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so, Yeah, tell us we, about yourself. Do you, are we recording now and you guys just edit it? Yes. Is that how it works? Actually, okay,
1: cool. uh, Zaretta, we oh. are not that gifted. We don't edit <laughs> very much. <laughs> the okay. truth is, the truth is what we have been finding is that the authentic conversation has been kind of appealing for people. So um, generally we, we edit a little in the beginning and the end maybe, but mostly we keep it all intact.
2: Absolutely. That's great. So one of the things I will say up front is I reordered these questions and I yes. think it's re- that reordering is relevant to um, kind of helping people kind of understand what they can't, understand the big picture and then think about what the, the, the small things they can do. I appreciated
0: um, that feedback and I have reflected that in our questions today. So I think James is on it. Uh,
2: Yes. Great. Fantastic. (laughs) Well, we're going to have a good conversation. So a little bit about myself. I grew up uh, born and bred in San Francisco, California. My grandparents came out to California in 1940 from the deep south. And my mother was a single parent. We lived in the housing projects in Hunters Point. But she created her own busing program and put us on the city bus lied about our address and we went over to school in the um neighborhood that was not from far from where my grandparents settled they were domestic my grandmother was a, a housemaid uh servicing the homes on knob hill for affluent white families and my grandfather was a um uh, longshoreman in the port of oakland mm. so both were uh not able to read I don't want to say they were illiterate they were very literate in the reading of the world um but they were not um readers they were not able to read and write I think my grandmother learned to sign her name when she was in her early 70s and I have a vivid memory of her own excitement about that moment um so that and I tell that story because it shapes who I am
0: sure very nice.
2: How I got passionate about this work, what I started to see in terms of kind of like, why is this type of education happening here? But when I go back to the housing project and I'm on the playground with my uh, friends and they're going to a different school, they're not having the same experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started, I was living the reality of this two and three tiered uh, in equitable system. So that's a little bit about me in terms of how I got started. but you know I, this is the work I continue to do. I've been a classroom teacher, taught composition when I was in that position. and in addition to that, outside of you know my passion around education, um, I'm the mother of two kids, both of whom I taught to read because I thought that was my civic duty um, from a social justice standpoint. Um, and they're now adults who've gone on to graduate from college and, you know, start to build their own lives. So, um, empty nester with my husband. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. so, yes.
1: Congrats for reaching
2: enjoy. that time. I know. Well, my daughter's graduated from Harvard last year, so she's back. Um, but, um, you know, we're enjoying her being back and and as she's building her life. So it's all good.
0: That's lovely. Um, so one of your most well-known books, the one that I have is culturally responsive teaching and the brain. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the premise of the book and what got you interested in the brain particularly? I mean, that's kind of a new, a new angle for culturally responsive teaching. So
2: well, this is this is a really good point you make uh, in terms of angle because I think one of the biggest challenges is uh, culturally responsive teaching is really misunderstood. And um, the premise of the book is to really uh, help people understand that culturally responsive teaching is our antidote to inequity by design. So I've been in education for 30 plus years. And one of the things that I've seen is, Um, We had a lot of focus on implicit bias training, anti-racist training, and courageous conversations. Mm -hmm. But I would then get calls from schools that were saying, and districts that were saying, help. We've done all this so-called equity work, but we're not impacting instruction. Right. And what I wanted them to see, and it's what I had always done, um, and what I learned from my own time as a teacher, that the student is the unit of change. So if you don't help the student become a cognitively independent learner, not just a compliant around independent learning behaviors where they're quiet and they follow directions and they do what they're told. And that is seen as independent. You're not getting on my nerves. I'm not having to kind of keep telling you what to do. Right. Ask three before me. (laughs) so we see all this happening and what we see are classrooms that are very compliant and then the teachers say well kids can't reach these standards or they can't do this rigorous work it's because we are not training them to be cognitively independent we are training them to be compliant Mm. and so I wrote culturally responsive teaching because it was how I had started to unlock the potential of my students I was a writing teacher How do you get a student to improve? I can teach all day from the front of the room, but you have to improve that sentence. You have to see your comma splices. And I learned by using these techniques what it meant for students to actually start to drive their own learning, not just out of motivation, but out of kind of, oh, I see. And if I change my learning move here, if I actually try to do a different thing, I see improvement. So I really started to dig into the neuroscience, social neuroscience and the cognitive neuroscience. But I always had this focus around equity and culture. So the premise of the book really is helping people see that it really is about how to help students become more cognitively independent so they can carry more of the cognitive load. Unfortunately, we have big misconceptions about what culturally responsive teaching is. It's about relationships or it's about engagement, it's about self-esteem. So there are all these misconceptions that are being promoted because people and, and I want to call out districts, right? Not in a negative way, but to actually say districts need to slow their role to build capacity, not toolkits. And this is what we keep seeing. Mm.
1: That is so powerful. I want to just re emphasize what you just said that I think is a really key point in the work we're doing when we're talking about the work of helping students become, you know, really. Uh, strong, authentic learners, that we want to help them become cognitively independent and not just compliant. Um, that That is a really important lever, I think, uh, uh, that we need to look at and trying to tip over into building independent learners and building kids who are hungry to learn and know how to learn. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Uh, Another question. What's the difference between multicultural education, culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally responsive teaching and learning, culturally sustaining pedagogies, et cetera, et cetera, from your vantage point? You know, as as educators, I think sometimes we feel a little buried and, and we aren't really sure which way is up.
2: Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And I think um, it's good on two levels, right? So I want to just start with, what's the difference between multicultural education and culturally responsive teaching? And then I want to kind of get into the other variants of culturally responsive or relevant or sustaining. Culturally responsive teaching is often confused with multicultural education and social justice education the biggest challenge we have is we think those are all interchangeable. Mm. And you have teachers, particularly white teachers who are hearing the culture part and think that that's, Oh, multicultural education. I'm doing that. Mm. So now because they think they're doing it, they're actually not giving students the, the skills and capacities and dispositions to actually become cognitively independent and, Unfortunately, multicultural education is about social interaction and getting along, harmony within a group, right? And this is where the most diversity and inclusion efforts lie. Social justice is about looking at the the inequities in the world. And you hear this is particularly, you know, popular fifth grade on where students are having an opinion about different inequities or are doing projects around them. Here's the thing that's really important when you look at how Gloria Ladson-Billings, Dr. Ladson-Billings, Dr. Asa Hillier, other uh, uh, forerunners and, and researchers around this work that coined those terms and codified the methodologies. They focused on being able to help students accelerate their learning. Those first two, multicultural, and social justice have nothing to do with learning. They have to do with getting along. They have to do with understanding the larger context. But it doesn't mean I'm at the end of that discussion of social justice topic, I can carry more of the cognitive load. I process information better. So we want to be able to understand where they intersect, but also that culturally responsive is about improving instruction so that teachers can become the personal trainer of students' cognition.
0: Wow. I love that. That is so, um, well, it's so wonderful. And it's also so different than what I think a lot of teachers believe culturally responsive education is. And that's just because it's a misconception. If this is not relative,
2: you believe this and I believe that. That's not how it's working. Right. And the fact is, if, the, if we allow that to happen in our schools, we are actually fueling inequity. This is like being pregnant. You can't be a little pregnant. <laughs> you either are or you're not. Either you are promoting equity, you are interrupting practices that repeat the inequitable outcomes, or you're promoting practices that, are the, that allow students to have the kind of uh, 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 capacity, and and again, I think the biggest you know misnomer is if we just kind of do this multicultural thing, they'll be more engaged. So I hear engagement often connected to that. So I think it is helping people understand why this is rooted in the science of learning, right? School improvement science. This is not just kind of oh wow, we should just be more kumbaya ish. Right. This is, sweet. this is there's science behind this. Now, here's the thing: I want to, you know, you also asked in that question. What's the difference between culturally relevant pedagogy, culturally responsive, culturally sustaining? I think this is a really good piece to pull out of this question, because again, most white educators have no experience with cultural anything, <laughs> and white therefore culture.
1: terms. What's that? White culture, I guess.
2: Yes, which is our predominant orientation, yes. the dominant culture, Definitely. right? Yes, And so again, most people of color have already navigated and learned to be bicultural, mm-hmm. if not tricultural. Mm-hmm. But white people have the comfort and the privilege not to have to do that. Now they're seeing the impact of that, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, snap, our schools are majority-minority, right? And, but that was happening eight years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, I, or more. What have, I, mm-hmm. what,
2: what have you been doing? So that's a whole different question. Let me just kind of, you know, say a little about these three different terms. Here's the way I explain it when I'm supporting school teams and doing this work at a deep level. Culturally responsive is the view of this work from the teacher's perspective. Responsive is the operative word. I see a student taking in the content, making meaning. And I respond to where the student schema is. I respond to the way they're processing information that may be culturally bound. And so I'm able to see that and leverage that because all new learning has to be coupled with old learning. What's their their funds of knowledge? What's the background knowledge that gets activated when we're studying this topic? That's the responsive part. So that's the view from the teacher cultural relevant is the view from the student. When I look at this content, is it relevant? Where in my brain do I already have some understanding of that? That's called schema, right? We all have schema, like these big hooks in our our brains where we store all this information and everybody organizes their schema slightly differently. And that, the first kind of Big way we organize it is just around kind of the the culture and the community that we grew up in. So the student is looking at the content to say, how do I make sense of it? That's the relevant. Let me say about the culturally sustaining. Dr. Paris really talked about this notion of sustaining But if you look at that literature, and it's spot on, what it says is schools want to get to a point where they are sustaining the cultural balance in schools. Like, this is not an add-on. The way that we're doing school has a balance of cultural orientations along the continuum of individualism and collectivism. Those expressions are connected to the students that are represented in that population but you cannot get to sustaining if you've never actually even balanced your cultural
1: orientations. Right. And so so I hear, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm a principal at an elementary school. I've just been in this building for a couple of years, and I think that the teachers have been doing some good work, but I recognize that we are not in the place where we have this cultural responsiveness, and we are not at the place where we even recognize the culturally relevant, meaning I don't know that the teachers are recognizing their own bias or their own narrow view because of who they are and what they've brought to the table. And I also think that they are not – uh, and maybe myself included because of my own you know places I've come from how do we help our teachers recognize what the view of the student is and what that schema is i think that's one of the places that we're kind of stuck we're we're not digging yeah. into it like we need to
2: well this is where i think we have to stop equating culturally responsive with implicit bias work So I'll just take it for the teachable moment, what you just said. You led with culturally responsive, but teachers can't see their bias. You may have a teacher who is still working on bias, but I can still understand the science of learning. True. And so it doesn't mean I am without bias, because this is where I see schools get tripped up. So now the PD is around bias. The teacher's amygdala is hijacked because white teachers hear that as you're (laughs) saying I'm racist. Right. Right. Now, the shit is shut down. Excuse my French. We'll have to just edit that out. <laughs> we, uh,
1: we planned this right, though, that I was going to say that inappropriately so that you could use this teachable every moment. Remember? Remember? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Absolutely. So, but the reality is this is why it is so important to understand how this stuff flows, right? Culturally responsive teaching isn't a thing. It's not like a program. Oh, we're going to do project-based learning. We're going to do cultures. It's not a thing. Right. But every time we
1: keep talking about it like it's a thing, then we get tripped up. So I th- if you don't mind, I, I want to go a little deeper, mm-hmm. though, because I want to be able to help mm-hmm. my teachers. The, the reason I'm, I guess, equating it to a thing is because I want to help my teachers respond to students. And you said sc- student schema. And I, so, I I see more like we throw in, we're throwing out chicken feed, kind of th- the same to all. And I don't know that that's always our best bet. Well, I think it's,
2: it, it depends on what part you're talking about. In my book, I talk in Chapter 8 about information processing. So if you help teachers actually start to understand how to make the, the presentation of information more connected to student schema. But this idea that we don't know what student's schema is, it is why I, wrote the, I it created the Ready for Rigor frame that emphasized learning partnerships. So when I'm working with teachers, there are tools that I give them to go back into their classroom to figure out what are students thinking about mm-hmm. and listening to and doing? How do you call that information? Because otherwise, not only is it chicken feed, you know, little mm-hmm. it, it, this, this is buckshot.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: I'm just doing stuff that I have. There's no science behind yeah. that. What, what's the reason you're doing that? So now what you have are teachers who are going on the internet or going to teachers pay teachers and pulling up a so-called lesson. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that thinking what, what's the, what's the, the theory of change that makes them enact that, that if the student just sees something that talks about racial identity or something about their home country or that now I will yeah. actually know how long vowels work. Yeah. That's a zone of wishful thinking. So what we've done is we've actually created this magical thinking around the tools and the methodology of culturally responsive practice versus understanding the science of learning behind it.
0: So is culturally responsive teaching just good teaching?
2: I, that's a really good Uh, a question. And I think that it is an interesting yes and no. And let me break that down. There are two parts, right? So when we think about culturally responsive teaching is in counterbalance, an antidote to inequity by design. And inequity by design has two parts, a structural part and an an instructional part. So the reason why it's not just good teaching, because then we have to define what good teaching is. But structurally, we have to first look at who's getting the good teaching. So traditionally, the most vulnerable students get the least prepared teachers. Hmm. So when you look at how education assigns kids, they get the new teachers. They get long-term subs. They get no other profession does that. Hospitals, they put their specialists on a hard case attorneys they get the senior partner to come take this really challenging case but in education we put our least prepared teachers with the most vulnerable students and all we're doing there is growing those achievement gaps so that's the structural part that's the leadership part then we have to look at the instructional part and the instruction part has to do making sure that instruction is grounded in the science of learning, how the brain turns inert information and random facts into usable knowledge. If teachers, are, if the whole school is not operating from, we know these are the steps that make that happen. Then they cannot choose content that is relevant to the student. They can't choose the right hooks. Instead, what we've done is overgeneralize that it's just some kind of racial mentioning, mm-hmm. random facts about Africa or Aztecs or to make kids feel good. But the instruction itself has not changed. So mm-hmm. kids cannot carry the more of the cognitive load because the way inequity was designed was to underdevelop cognitive capacity of black and brown and indigenous children Mm -hmm. and that that's just documented that's not me saying this is my view we we know this from you know the way um uh public education was originally structured it we were structured on apartheid we just didn't call it that (laughs) we called it segregation
1: Mm -hmm. right i I have another question sorry it's off script Mm -hmm. a little bit I know That's that our okay. state has been emphasizing home visits, and we've picked that up a little bit this year just to try to, because we have a lot of new people, try to get to know more and make connections with the community. What What is your feeling about home visits and, and you know, checking out or, you know, seeing kids in their own, like, environment, getting to know yeah, families?
2: I, I think you have a double-edged sword. So what's not happening is there's no training and capacity building of teachers to do that. We're not leveraging teacher leaders, building their capacity to then help other teachers understand what it means to go into these communities in an authentic way. How are you establishing a learning partnership with with parents, right? Particularly if you have a deficit view. So what doesn't get lifted up and examined is understanding how structural inequity works throughout. Our system. Mm-hmm. So you'll have people, teachers, who will go into communities they've never had contact with, and what they're seeing reinforces a deficit view
0: mm-hmm. because
2: it doesn't look like their home life,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they cannot see the assets that those parents bring or that that situation brings because those people are low income because they're non English speakers because they do funny things.
1: Mm-hmm
2: you know, in terms of interaction. So I see it, particularly if these are predominantly white teachers, as very dangerous without training and capacity building. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate you giving us some feedback on that. Mm -hmm.
0: So um, what could um, educators do tomorrow, uh, some little things, to be more culturally responsive? So let's break that down one more time because we can't (laughs) keep using it like it's a thing. Right. Right? Exactly. in my
2: book, I have the ready for rigor framework. And what I try to tell people is if the goal of culturally responsive teaching is to get kids ready for rigor so that they can feel cognitively independent, they can carry more of the load over time. Mm -hmm. Then you have to look at these three key areas, building learning partnerships with students so that when you have the student engage in productive struggle, they can lean in there with you. And particularly if they are behind. Right. So the vulnerable students, their internal dialogue is such that they now are thinking their problem is with them, that Mm -hmm. they're broken. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't help kids shift that, not because they can't that, you know, their home life is broken, but because we have sent messages to them in school. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to create an intellectually safe environment that's chapter nine in the book, right? How are you creating a community of learners where students' learner identity is not in conflict with their cultural or racial identity? Because if there are narratives about certain groups of kids, who's smart and who's not, then kids over time, as early as first grade, start to hear those subtle um, narratives and internalize them. So Mm -hmm. the learning partnership piece is key. And there are things a teacher can do right now. Right. So if you can get in the classroom, you can. And one of the things that I advocate is kid watching to get five blank index cards, write the name of the child up there, pick five kids that over the course of that week, you're going to watch those kids. Oh, what's their preference? You're going to make some you're going to talk to them, do little kind of, you know, uh, stealth interviewing so that you can build rapport with them. Hey, how are you doing? How's your mom? Oh, I heard you guys. What we know is these are trust builders. Mm -hmm. So now when you want the student to do something that might feel, oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. I can't do that. Or I'm I'm sure they trust you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the trust building. You can do that today. And then what I tell teachers is, Once you've done that for a week, you put those two aside and you get five more blank ones. And the next week you pick five different kids. Mm -hmm. Over six weeks, you will know things about your kids as learners that help them build trust with you and help you help them level up. You're becoming the personal trainer of their cognitive development. But remember, the first step of that trainer, personal trainer relationship with a, a new client is building rapport. Mm-hmm. you trust me to take yep. you to the next level to do things that you don't think you're capable of doing, that you clearly could not do on your own? That's why you came to me. That's what we're saying to kids because kids are the primary drivers of their own learning. Only the learner learns. And if we can't help the learner feel good about him or herself as a learner, do new things and, and, and get information, errors are information, not confirmation of low intelligence. This is something teachers need to be saying and doing. These are small things. That's just the learning partnership. We haven't even talked about the things they can do with information processing. Here's the thing I want you to to understand and and your audience as well. Culturally responsive teaching is an integrated uh, set of processes, structures, and uh, interactions that over time build the student's capacity. We can't keep talking about it like it's a thing that you could just reach in a bag and actually get, and you know, pull out. Right. And and I see folks continue to do this. So you can talk about culturally responsive teaching and to build partnerships. And we build partnerships so that we can help students process information. Because why is this important? Competence precedes confidence. We want kids to be confident, but what we know is if I don't believe I can, if I see no progress, I will not be confident. So we have it twisted. We think this is something to build self-esteem. We think Mm -hmm. we keep talking about it in the aggregate when we have to break it down into its components. That's why I created the ready for rigor frame. And if you actually look at that ready for rigor frame, I want everybody listening, go get your book right now. Look at that ready for rigor frame. In the center, there's a circle. And then the circle it has on the left wise feedback and on the right instructional conversation. These are things teachers can do. Look at how you are setting up time for conferencing with students. Are right. you actually helping them think about their learning moves? Not did you get it right or did you get it wrong? But what, what method of, 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 you know, doing this equation did you use? You know, I taught you four different strategies. Which two do you think are best for this? Just to have that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Feedback. How are you giving, how are you have processes for formative feedback? Formative assessment. If you don't have those structures, culturally responsive teaching, because I've said something or I've shaped the content and added, diversified it by adding some brown faces, is not going to help the student become a better learner. Right. So, this is why this is a little more complex than, oh, we just need to get a culturally responsive toolkit. Mm-hmm. People are narrowly focusing on changing the curriculum. But that is not where you will start to see students being able to be more competent. It's in their ability in what I call chewing more effectively that builds cognitive capacity for yeah. them to carry more of the cognitive load. This is long-term work.
1: Yeah, it This does is not, not, not overnight. the kind of
2: quick. It doesn't. And we can't say it's just about implicit bias mm-hmm. because you can do that work forever and never shift to talking about
0: instruction.
1: Yeah, what's happening with that kid in the classroom? Yeah.
0: And I feel like that's been kind of the misdirection of some of the systems that I've been part of, and Tracy too. That um, you know, th- really, there's been just that focus on implicit bias, and we never get beyond yeah. that. And then people lose steam eventually, and they mm-hmm. don't see the effects on practice in their schools. And then you know, and then they say it didn't work. Um, and here's
2: the thing: I don't want to spout. Spell- conspiracy theories but we do know how inequity by design works so this is you're absolutely right that we are intelligent educators we should ground ourselves in the science of learning culture is a software to the brain's hardware all instruction is culturally responsive the question is to whose culture is it responding Yep. yeah Mm when you're starting to chew and make meaning of content, that's the place, not just the curricular materials. So we have to help. And I think this is very doable for instructional coaches and teacher leaders are the linchpin. So what I really want to see is for us to build their capacity so they can guide teachers and help provide professional learning through collaborative inquiry, action research, lesson study, I don't care. I'm agnostic on what the method is, but <laughs> teachers need some kind of inquiry process to step back from their teaching and to see what effect is it having on the student. Is a student choosing a new learning move? Is a student saying something different to himself? Is a student trying to carry more of the cognitive load? If you're not connecting the professional learning of teachers to student moves, you're right. Teachers are going to abandon it because they are being—it's being promoted as magic.
1: Yeah, yeah. That cognitive load is, a, I think, a really important element that we have to keep at the forefront of the discussion to continue to help build that competence. I love what you said earlier. You know that competence precedes confidence, uh, and and I I want to hold on to that as well in the work that we're
0: doing.
2: Absolutely.
0: So um, we have one last question. If you could talk to your younger self through a, a, a time machine of sorts and give your younger self advice about how to be more successful as an educator, what advice would you give?
2: I would give myself the advice of continuing to be the personal trainer of students' cognitive development. I think I stumbled on that as a writing teacher. Uh, in terms of how to help students become better writers, knowing only by writing, only by paying attention to your, to how you're writing and how you're constructing sentences. And it, 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 students were going to see change. And so for myself, it's just really setting up more of those systems so that students over time could talk about and think about those changes. And just being able to track that more. Um, I think it, it, it would be so critical. I think we get, as as young educators, we get really caught up in the standards conversation, assessment, is testing good or testing bad. And we've forgotten the student is the unit of change. Mm-hmm. And we are so enamored with all the, you know, educational jargon and the new things coming. How students learn, the fact that they have brains, the fact that culture structures their schema and I have to couple this new content onto their existing schema that that, that should be just basic and right. how do we start to understand how do we start to learn what students know right and so honoring those funds of knowledge I think just as a, a, a young educator being more focused on my student and getting inside my students head rather than standards and is the learning target on the on the uh, <laughs> board. Yeah. Because that's the current conversation. I have teachers who can talk about standards who cows come home, but cannot have no understanding of how a student learns new content, what information processing is, or even basic learning theory, how the brain learns new things.
1: And, and also, I think we struggle with helping our students right? Metacognitively reflect on their own learning and become more powerful in that learning process themselves. But here's
2: the thing that I want to say, Tracy, in closing. It is not about metacognition. If my thinking is low and somebody says, be metacognitive, guess what I'm thinking about? My low thinking. Metacognition is not what accelerates that. Unless we so that, build
1: in that competence, right?
2: No, I think it's being metastrategic. This is what Ron Rickard and Making Thinking Visible talks about. He says, how do you have conversations about learning moves? To me, just thinking about it without having a conversation. Where's the coach? Who's the personal trainer? Because otherwise I go around just my thinking. Me thinking about it by myself doesn't get me better. Me exercising by myself is not going to get me to Olympic status. I need Mm -hmm. a coach for that. So teachers have to become the personal trainer. Where are they being meta-strategic? Tell me this Strategy and the process you use—that's different than just think about what you did.
1: No, you're—I—I I, I misspoke then because I do really powerfully believe in that making thinking visible. That we want to always ask our students to help dig deeper and being able to show and and have evidence of that learning. Um, yeah, but I but I want it to be, and, and maybe I'm on the wrong track here too. I want it to be so that students go back and reflect on how you've done a great job here. Here's what you did earlier. Look at how much you've made some changes. W- what does that change look like? How did you get to this new place? What have you done that That's has helped right. you bring you know this work level up, or you've increased this knowledge? But um, I, I really but here, go ahead.
2: Here's what I want to say is. That conversation you were just having, I think we then have to get more fine grained. So this is my point about where, how is time being used? Because if you don't have time Mm -hmm. reorganized, if you are holding the whole class and you never are building capacity for students to work independently or in small groups while you conference with a student, then you can't have that conversation. Right. So there's so many pieces of this. That's more than, but what I see is a lot of kind of rah rah. You can do it. Like, you know, how did you improve? It's so general that it's not helpful to this most vulnerable, struggling student. It's okay for the students already an independent learner, but that will not shift a dependent learner. They need coaching, right? At, at fine grained level. So that is the difference between what culturally responsive teaching actually is.
0: Wow. This has been really, really enlightening and, and humbling. Um, <laughs> we appreciate it's real work. Yes, it is it real is. work.
2: It is not. It's not toolkit status. The, the hallmark of an inequitable system masquerading as an equity focused school system is a culturally responsive toolkit
0: right. online. It doesn't. That's yet. a hallmark. It, it doesn't t- exist. T- tale. It doesn't <laughs> that, exist. And that is a and very good. If you're good creating
2: ticket. one, if you're creating one, you're an inequitable system.
0: <laughs> that's a good. That's a good takeaway. Um, <laughs> we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you, Zaretta. And um, you know, do you have any uh, future books coming out or any? I do. I oh. do. I'm
2: working on one, and now. Self-quarantining may actually help it move along. (laughs) Uh (laughs) so it'll probably come out next year. I was hoping for this year. And then I've got some online resources, which I'm like, oh wow, this is perfect now that every everybody's at home and and doing homeschooling and you know, professional learning for teachers and still needs to go on. So definitely I'm working on those things and I'm super excited to have folks um, learn more about them and they should visit my website CRTnthebrain.com and get on my newsletter and i keep them up to date about what's coming out
0: excellent thank you so much and have a good rest of your day we appreciate your your insights and your um help by getting us on the right track thank Thank you miss hammond thank you thank you for waiting for me i appreciate it (laughs) thank you all right Bye. Bye. Bye -bye. bye bye